Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, it's great to see you today. Did you bring your Bible? Good, because we're going to refer to it, believe it or not. We're going to look in a real gospel. We're going to look in the real gospel of Luke chapter 2. You may want to turn there. Luke chapter 2, a real gospel, and I'm distinguishing Luke chapter 2, a real gospel, from phony gospels, because there are plenty of phony gospels. There are phony gospels today, but that goes way back. It's got a long pedigree. Back to the earliest years of the church, shortly after these gospels were put together, there were people who put out fake gospels. They put them out often under the name of a prominent apostle or church leader, but they were not by them. There's a gospel of Thomas, not by Thomas. There's a gospel of Peter, not by Peter, and a number of others. Not by those people, but using their name, they put out all kinds of strange ideas, mostly about what they called the lost years of Jesus. Those years in between 12 and when he made his public appearance, those are the lost years. They're not really lost. We know exactly what he was doing. But the phony gospels spin out all kinds of stories. Funny thing is, these phony gospels, they're waiting to be discovered every few years. The popular press will discover them and say, there is now a secret gospel. Or the History Channel will put out a documentary about the lost years of Jesus based on a secret, hidden gospel. They purport to tell the rest of the story that our Gospels don't. Now, that's kind of curious to me, because the people who in the popular press make those popular every few years and pretend that they've discovered something new, or the people that make the films about the secret years of Jesus, they don't believe the real Gospel to begin with, and yet they give great weight to the phony Gospels. I've always found that kind of curious. They really aren't unknown Gospels. They've been known for a long time. And people that have known about them from the earliest years of the church have also long discounted them, largely because of the fantastic, hard-to-believe stories about those so-called lost years of Jesus. In some of those phony Gospels, there are stories about boy Jesus playing with his friends and they're making little mud creatures and little mud pies and all kinds of things out of the clay and mud, the, the dirt and the water. The difference is when boy Jesus makes his, he touches his and the little clay birds fly away. Or the little clay animals begin to walk. They have life. There are stories in those phony gospels about boy Jesus healing people and raising his playmates from the dead. He's full of adult wisdom the boy Jesus in those phony Gospels. In fact, in their telling, he's kind of a miniature of the worst movie portrayals you've ever seen of Jesus. That's what he's like. There are all kind of wild boyhood stories in there. But there is one boyhood story in Luke chapter 2 that is solid. And there are reasons why it has survived. See if you can't pick it out as we work through it. You likely, if you're a Bible reader, are familiar with the story. 
of Jesus going up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. He's about 12 years old. He goes up with his parents to celebrate that great feast. There's all kind of other things going on. It's a week of fevered activity and worship and family time and extended family time there in the great city of Jerusalem. He's about 12 years old, as I said, and according to their custom, they're present for the Passover feast, and it's time to return, to go back home, to their home in the north, in Galilee, in, Galilee, in Nazareth. And Jesus, being 12 years old, he likely has been bar mitzvahed at this time, so he's kind of in that quasi space where he's not a boy, but he's not a man, but he's given some responsibilities. And he's allowed to come back with the family on his own, the extended family. And it's very likely that now he's not a baby, he's not a child, that Mother Mary, she thinks, well, he's with Dad, Joseph. And Joseph, he's not quite a man, thinks, well, maybe he's with Mom. A little failure to communicate there between them. But at the end of the day of traveling, one thinking he's with one and one with another, when the parents get their heads together, where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. Well, I thought you had him. And so they go into panic mode and they rush back. They're a day away. So it takes them a whole day to get back. They suppose that he was traveling with the caravan, but he's not, and they're a day away, so now a day back. And then they begin looking for him, and they don't find him. And they're scouring Jerusalem, and that's going to take time. In fact, in verse 46 of chapter 2, three days they've been without Jesus. I've lost my kids in stores before, but never for three days. I panicked when it was just a minute. Three days now they've been without him. And you know the story. They find him in the temple, in the temple complex, and there he is with the brain trust. He's with the teachers and all the professors of the law. And rather than him being lectured to, he is lecturing. And he's talking to them, and he's asking his questions, something that as he grows will become a trademark with him. And that's why we have this series, Questions Jesus Asks. He starts at a very young age, doesn't he? But his parents come into this scene where he's surrounded by all of these doctors of the law and learned people, and they're amazed. They're amazed. The people are amazed. His parents are amazed. In fact, it says when mom and dad come into that room, they've located him at last at the end of three days of panic, that they're astonished. And his mother says to him, speaking for mom and dad, why have you treated us this way, son? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he says to them, verse 49, and it is our question for the day. One of those 295 very pointed questions that Jesus asked. He said to them, his parents, why is it that you're looking for me? Some of our versions say, why are you searching for me? What a crazy question for that kid to ask his parents after three days. Why are you searching for me? Pick the story up. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Verse 50. But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. He went back home and continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in their heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Now, it seems likely that this story that we just looked at, where Jesus ends up asking the very pointed question, why are you searching for me? It's very likely that we've got an eyewitness account from none other than Mary herself. By the time this story is retold to Dr. Luke, the historian, in the gospel that we have, Father Joseph is gone. He's passed away, but Mary is still very much alive. And Dr. Luke says that he relies on eyewitness accounts for everything he tells us in his gospel because he was not present for any of this. He's not one of the original 12. So he relies on eyewitnesses, and it looks like the eyewitness that gives him this story is Mary herself. And the story survives largely because of the way she's told it. It seems to be an eyewitness account for Mary. I mean, look at the part where it talks about how the parents were unaware of the child's whereabouts as the caravan is rolling down the road back home. They're unaware of his whereabouts. Who would know that except the parent themselves? And, th and then there's the part that says they supposed that he was somewhere in that caravan heading back to Nazareth. Well, again, who would know that? Only an eyewitness, only one of the parents. When, when Joseph and Mary do finally find him there in the temple complex with all the learned doctors of the law, they, they saw him and it says that they were astonished. Again, that's something only you would know if you were the one who was astonished. But then it says he continued after the incident. And they gather him up and they rush him out of that room and, and they get him back on the road home. It says he continued in subjection to them. It seems that Mary would not let Luke, as he's writing down the account, that she would not allow Luke to think that this one very independent act by boy Jesus meant that she had lost control. Yes, he was very independent there, but he continues in subjection to them. Where did that come from? That's a very mom thing to say, isn't it? We'll go back to the story. The backstory we know well, but I've got a feeling that this story survives because unlike some of the very fanciful and embellished stories about Jesus' boyhood, those so-called secret lost gospels, this is a very solid story, and that's probably the reason that we still have it. Why are you searching for me? We'll let the backstory and what he was doing in the temple, we'll let that go for now, and we'll just drill down on that one question that Jesus asked that we should answer. Why are you searching for me? That question may have brought more distress to his distraught parents when he asked it. Why are you searching for me? They're frazzled with worry. And now days of searching, and, and he has a follow-up question. That one was bad, but this one had to have caused more trouble. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? 
That one must nearly have wrecked them. What's wrong with you that you didn't know where to look for me? We're going to save that for another day. But that verse 48, that is a major anxiety attack. Why are you searching for me? It's a good question for Jesus to put to us, isn't it? Why are you searching for me? Okay, why am I searching for Jesus? People do this, you know, they search for Jesus. We call them seekers, and there's a whole school of thought in church growth about seeker-sensitive, be seeker-sensitive to people that are seeking Christ, be sensitive to them. I'm not sure how valid all of that is all of the time, but people do search for truth, and they do search for reality, and they do look in the direction of Jesus Christ. So why am I searching for Jesus? There can be good reasons, but there can be reasons of my own that may not always be so pure, too. Maybe one of the reasons is I want to get something. I search out Jesus. I go after Him because I want to get something. I want to get something from Him. And though we seldom would admit that we actually ask that question or frame it that way, part of it is also I want to get something from Him without very much cost to my own agenda. That could be one of the reasons people search for Him, to get something without it costing a lot. Too bad if that's what you're searching for Jesus for. Too bad for you because he says, take up your cross and follow me. He also says, whoever would save his life will lose it. You know, I think we can measure how much you might have bought into an idea like that, that I'm searching for Jesus for what I can get out of him. We, we can measure how much we've bought into that reason that many people do look for him by asking another question, what price right now am I paying to be associated with Jesus? Let me just let that hang there for a minute. What am I paying right now to be associated with Jesus Christ? Time? Is it costing me money? Prayer investment? Obedience in my life? to live the way He wants me to? Or, or do, I, do I slough off disobedience by saying, oh well, God is merciful. What's it really matter if I mess up? If failing Christ in large ways, failing Him in small ways means nothing to you, you could be in trouble. And you may want to go back to the basics and examine your relationship from the beginning. And it may not be following Christ that you're doing. It may be following your own wishes. You may have tricked yourself into believing that there is no cost to following Jesus. To being associated with Jesus doesn't cost anything. And that's a crazy notion when you're talking about a Savior who died on a cross, you see. It does cost something to follow Jesus. Jeremiah was right, though. We can trick ourselves into thinking it won't cost me anything. I can get what I need from Christ, and, and it won't upset my own agenda. It won't cost me anything. We can trick ourselves into believing that because Jeremiah the prophet was right when he said the heart of people is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? We can fool ourselves. Paul said he was afraid of fooling himself. His great fear in life was that after preaching to other people about the fullness of Christ, that he would somehow lull himself into a notion 
tickling his ego into believing that somehow, after all he'd done for God, that God owed him. That obedience costs nothing. And that Paul, the great apostle, after bringing so many people inside Christ, would find himself outside of Christ. Jesus says, count the cost. You want to follow me? You want to be associated with me? Count the cost. Because costs are involved. We are always and eternally in debt to Christ. And walking with him will bring a cost. So one of the reasons may be, what can I get out of him? That may be why I'm searching for him. Maybe, maybe I'm searching for him because I want to feel safe. Again, unfortunately, Jesus says to those who follow him, are associated with him so they feel safe, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. Comfort and, and being comfortable are important goals for us, very important goals for us. We organize much of our life around being comfortable. And Jesus does give comfort. And I would not downplay that part of him in our lives, but comfort only comes when you have skin in the game. Comfort from Christ only comes when you have skin in the game. This last week, we read together in 2 Corinthians, our Bible reading calendar, and there was something there that should have dropped, jumped out at us because it talks about this very thing. It talks about, about the comfort that comes from Christ. But comfort comes from Him only when we've invested in Him. In fact, the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 1, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. He gives us plenty of comfort. He says, so also our comfort is abundant in Christ. But only because we've suffered with Christ. You see? He gives comfort, but only to those that have skin in the game. Maybe nobody else has pointed this out to you. But the comfort of Christ is very real, but it can't be separated from the sufferings of Christ and from the difficulties that are part of walking with Christ. He gives comfort, in other words, to those who need it because they follow him close enough that they, that they get tarred with the same brush he gets tarred with. Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble. If they hated you, they'll hate me. You see, we are, we are following a Savior who was condemned as a felon. You know that. He was despised and rejected of men. You know that. He was maligned. He was misunderstood. That was part of who he was. And like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And though he was condemned and reviled, he did not open his mouth. Read the Acts story and the story of the earliest church. And that is a story of tremendous opposition against people that are wanting to do tremendous good. There's a culture there that put on a full court press to block the message of Christ and stop the messengers of Christ. So we should never be amazed or worried when things are trouble for us. We should never be surprised when you face troubles as a follower of Christ, but you should be surprised and worried when things are quiet for too long because something's not right then. So we search for Jesus because we want to feel safe. He'll cause us to feel safe when we put it on the line for him. 
Maybe I'm searching for Jesus because I want him to be my fixer. There are people who have the title of fixer. Did you know that? Becky began to watch a series on television about these political fixers, but she stopped because it got kind of nasty. But there were people in there, that was their title. They were fixers. If a political figure would get in trouble, any kind of trouble, they could fix it. They could make it go away. They were fixers. I get in a jam, I call a fixer. That's the way it works. And sometimes we do the same thing with Jesus. We, we search for him because we want him to be our fixer. We're kind of like a small child who breaks a favorite toy and then hands it to daddy, fix it. And many make that pattern behavior. I break things, and Jesus is always around when I need him to fix things. And then I break more things, and then he fixes things. That's my relationship with him. Let me, let me caution you and maybe save you from crashing and burning. What we mean by fix things isn't always what Jesus means by fix things. The greatest pound-for-pound pound boxer the world has ever seen, Ray Robinson. When I was a kid, he was my idol. There isn't anything he couldn't do in the ring. He was a puncher. He was a boxer. His footwork was like a tap dancer. He could do anything. He was in. He was out. He reigned as champion for three different divisions over an extended period of years, fought well into his almost 50 years old, successful career. He could do it all, pound for pound, the greatest. But at the very height of his career, his sister, his favorite sister, got very, very ill, hospital sick. And they said she may not pull through. And so Ray went to the neighborhood church. It was pretty much empty, and he knelt there, and he prayed that God would save his sister. And he felt like that God said, I will save your sister. And he jumped up and he ran to the hospital to tell everybody, God's going to save. And she was gone. He was broken. He was sure he had heard God say, I will, your sister will be saved. Sometime later, he went back into that church and he was just broken this time. Disappointed. Sister had not been saved. And as he's pouring his heart out. He begins to weep. And, and some member of that church saw this very famous man in their church weeping and went over and began to talk and, and got the story from Ray that God said my sister would be saved. And this wise saint, we don't know who it was, told him, well, God did save your sister. She's with him. He saved her soul, and that's what counts. See, very often what Jesus means by fixing things isn't quite what we want him to mean by fixing things. But very often we want Jesus, we seek him out just to be a fixer, don't we? Why else do we search for Jesus? Maybe we want to remake him in my own image. And when we do that, that's the reverse of creation, isn't it? God created us in his image, but very often we spend a lot of time trying to make God in our own image. We want God to be like us. He's very unlike us. We reverse creation that way. We end up, actually, when we do that, trying to make God in our own image. If we play it out long enough, we make a God of myself. 
That's what we end up doing. And that's the opposite of saying that He is Lord. It makes me Lord. There are an awful lot of people that want Jesus as Savior. Whatever they mean by that, usually they mean I just want to stay out of hell if possible. But there are a lot of people that want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want Him as Lord. They don't want Him as the shot caller. They don't want Him as the master of their life. But Jesus is the one who says, all authority has been given to me. He is the Lord. That's been given to Christ. And I don't get to shape Him. He shapes me, you see. So why are you searching for Jesus? It can never, ever be for the things that He may or may not give us. We need to search Him for Him. The Word says, search Him so that I may be found in Him. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His sufferings. And I may be found in Him. The Word says, believe in God, believe also in Me. That's what Jesus said. Believe in Me. Don't believe in the things about Me. Don't believe in statements about me. Believe in me. Believe in me. That's why we searched for Jesus. So why am I searching for Jesus? Great question, but there's another one that may be just as good. Why is Jesus searching for me? Because he is, you know. One of the reasons he's searching for us is he wants to extend his family. He wants to grow his family. A few weeks ago, we looked at the question where Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? And at the end of that little story, he says, as he waves his hand to this vast multitude of people, he said, behold, here are my mother, here's my sisters and brother. And in that moment, he effected the greatest adoption the world has ever known. He wants to adopt us. It's what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans. Turn there. What a rich passage. If you're ever stuck, if you're ever unstuck spiritually and you feel like you cannot hear from God and you open the Word and it just is not there, turn to Romans 8. There's plenty in Romans 8 that will catch fire for you. And in the 8th chapter of Romans, the 14th verse, we're told this, all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. These are the children of God. Those who are being led by the Spirit of God. For you've not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. He doesn't come to dominate you. But you have received, listen, a spirit of adoption so that as His children, you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He adopts us. He adopts us into His family. That's why Jesus is looking for people. That's why He's looking for you. He wants to adopt you into His family. And then drop down to the 22nd verse. I told you it's packed full. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, just like the whole creation is groaning. We groan, waiting eagerly for our adoption. 
We long to be adopted by Him. Every person in the whole world that's ever been created is groaning inside. And in fact, all of creation groans waiting for Him to adopt us. We see, when you think about that, we see a lot of people around us acting out, don't we? Acting out in the bad sense of that term. They're acting out. And they're, they're people who want to be adopted, but at the same time, they're resisting the adoption. And so, like bad children, they act out. Adoption. He adopts us. I think sometimes that the church has spent centuries talking about salvation, which is important. But talking about who is saved and who isn't saved. And for how long are you saved? And can you lose it? And we've we've been talking endlessly about salvation when we should have been talking to the world about adoption. And what a wonderful thing that is, to be adopted by God. Because that is news that people will want to hear. Yes, you have been living outside of God's family, but let me tell you, He's inviting you into His family. And He wants to adopt you. Yes, you look very little like Him, and there's not much family resemblance between you and Jesus right now, that's true. But come and live with him and you'll be transformed, you will be changed and you'll begin to look like his other son. That's a powerful thing, adoption by God. That's one of the reasons he's looking for you is to adopt you. But He's also looking for friends. Jesus will tell his closest Associates, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends because that's what you are. Jesus is looking for friends. Even at the very end, Judas, he called a friend. It's a wonderful thing to be a friend of God, isn't it? Why is Jesus looking for me? He's also looking for worshipers. It's very strange that he shared a secret that was known only within God Himself, known only by Father, Son, and Spirit, a longing, a desire, an aspiration that was deep in their spirit. That He shared that with a terribly broken woman. A woman who had a checkered past, who'd been there and done that, who'd been in and out of relationships that were all wrong. But he sought her out and he shared with her something that was known only within the Godhead, and that is that God is seeking, searching people to be worshipers. That's God's longing. Why is Jesus looking for me? He's looking for me to be a worshiper. Because he knows when I worship, there is nothing greater that can fill my mind than him. That he is the greatest thought I can contain. And that, in fact, my mind was designed for prayer. (laughs) And that I'm at my best when I'm in worship and looking at Him. Looking for worshipers, that's why He's looking for me. But finally, He's looking for disciples. Disciples. Last week, we touched on that. and, And some of the things I said last week about disciples... Jesus wanting disciples, disciples being apprentices. It intrigued a few people in our church, and I've had some conversations from that. But Jesus looking for disciples, it stems from the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go into all the world. 
And we know that part of it well. Right before Jesus says that, he says, all authority has been given to me. In fact, that means that I am in charge. I am the boss now. I'm the shot caller. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. I'm the one that can tell you what to do now. Go and make disciples. Don't just tell people about me. Make disciples. A disciple is an apprentice. And Jesus makes it very clear that you are really not a disciple. You're not a disciple of Christ if you're not following Him. And you're really not a disciple of Christ until you have made another disciple. And really you're not an effective discipler until your disciple that you've poured your life into, like Jesus poured His life into them, and like He pours His life into us. What things I have taught you, teach them. We're really not successful disciplers until our disciples begin making disciples. This is a truth that has just come to me like a ton of bricks lately. And I've got to tell you, it's one of those things that as I've looked at it, I've realized that we're missing it. Not just our church, but every church I know anything about, we're missing it. And as I've encountered this idea that what Jesus is looking for is disciples who will make disciples, who will teach them everything that they've learned in walking with Christ themselves. Here's how I read the scriptures. Here's how I pray. Let me, let me take you alongside and show you how I navigate this thing. Until you've done that, you've not pleased the Lord. And really, until your disciple has then done that, you've taught them so successfully that now they disciple that's when you begin to really please the Lord. That's what we were made for, you see. We're going to be talking a lot more about that in the, the weeks to come. But Jesus is looking to expand his family. That's why he's looking for you. He, 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 he's looking for friends. That's why he's searching you out. And he searched you out because he's looking for worshipers. Will you be one? And will you be a disciple? Why do you need to search for me? That's what Jesus said to his parents. In the New Living Translation, it says, What made you search? What made you search for Jesus? The struggle really isn't necessary. That's what he was saying to his parents. The struggle in searching for me really is unnecessary when you think about it because Jesus makes himself easy to find and easy to love. So what made you search? He's been there all along. Not that far away. He's accessible. He's reachable. He's touchable. In a book that um, the late Tim Russert, the journalist, wrote about fathers, he tells the story of, of one lady... Approaching middle age, her father passed away. Her and her father were very tight, very close. And now dad was gone, and it was very, very hard for her. The adjustment was tough. And there are people in this room, we've reached that point in our lives where our parents are going away, and we know what that's like. But it was particularly tough for her because her and her father are very close. And he, even though she was a grown woman, he always was looking out for daddy's little girl. 
And she missed him terribly. And she had the feeling that he was so far away. That's what really hurt. He's so far away. One day she went into the shed to do some gardening. And um, she realized that she had to sharpen the shears on the grinding wheel before they would do the job. And he had taught her how to do all of this, so she turned on the grinder. And she remembered, because he always looked out for her, he always told her, safety goggles, safety goggles, safety goggles. So she reached up on the hook for the safety goggles. And she began to put them on, but there was a note taped inside the safety goggles from her dad. He had written it before he passed away. And it said something like, always protect your beautiful eyes. And she had the sensation that dad is not that far away. Jesus is not that far away. He's closer than beside us. He's within us. He lives his life within us, you see. We don't need to search really hard to find him. But he's searching for us at the same time. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.